Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of the hosts, Asia Bonilla. And I'm Charles Sheeland, the other host. And today we are finishing The Enchantress and thereby finishing our second series of the podcast, The Secrets of the Immortal, Nicholas Flamel by Michael Scott. We've wrapped up our second series already. Like, wow, time flies. And as we remind you every week, we're a book club podcast with the Nerd Party Network and we're reading and rereading young adult books and sharing them with each other. Yep. So as best friends, we're sharing these books with each other and we turned sharing books with each other into the podcast. We started with a series Asia had read, and then we moved on to this one, which I had read, and starting next week, we're starting the Twilight series, which by Stephanie Meyer, which Asia has read and I've never read. So you'll get those range of perspectives that we always have of Asia having read the series multiple times and her rereading, and then mine will be reading it for the first time, and this week, mine from rereading The Enchantress and Asia for reading it the first time. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear Charles's thoughts on Twilight. I've been waiting for him to read it for almost half a decade, but I'm also super excited to wrap up The Enchantress today. And part of the way we run the show is that the newcomer, me in this case, gets to summarize the reading in case you couldn't read along with us. So I'll just go ahead and quickly summarize the second half of The Enchantress. So we have Nicholas, Perinelle, the Crow Goddess, Billy, Machiavelli, Blackhawk, Mars, Odin, and Hell whole bunch of people in san francisco on alcatraz and during the course of these chapters the elders and next generation die and in the fight against sholatol i think is how we say it the giant crab and the other monsters they are able to awaken aa though the old spider and she helps them ultimately win the day on alcatraz and then over on the Golden Gate Bridge, Neaton and Prometheus are basically defeated, but Sagagalal beats the Spar toy and is able to give her life force so that she becomes mortal and Neaton is able to be resurrected. And on Donutalus, 10,000 years in the past, Virginia and Dee lead the Aten Liberation Movement. The Fab Five and Prometheus fight on the Temple of the Sun against Bastet's forces, and the twins escape Isis and Osiris with the help of young Sagagalal. But on top of the pyramid, they first defeat their quote-unquote parents, and then realize that they must separate and destroy Donutalus, which I'm sure we'll discuss further. But my impression of the reading, of course, is that I was right in my theory about Morethi's identity— he was Josh, so I was really proud of myself. But I did feel a little disappointed in Sophie's ending arc. And honestly, like a lot of the characters' arcs, like I, I, I don't know, I feel like I feel like there were a lot of stories that just felt a little unfinished, and we'll talk about it more later in the episode. But I am just glad that we didn't really lose any of our major good guy humans during the battle. So because, I mean, obviously it's the end of a series, you know, we're expecting lots of death, there's lots of battles, but really none of our main, like, human beings died. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that more as well, like, sort of unfinished arcs, because I do agree that we didn't get resolution, or as much resolution as I would have liked for some characters. For me, my impression, like, having been re-reading the books, is that 
I understood the time travel a lot better than I did the last time I read the series. I think. I might be wrong, but I think I understood it better than the last time. So that's kind of nice that, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, I can understand time travel a little better. And the, when I first finished the series the first time and I found out who Marethi was and I found Sophie's arc, I was incredibly disappointed. And that disappointment wasn't there this time, but that's because I knew the whole time who Marethi was going to be. So before we get too far to the end, let's just dive in and we'll explore all those things. I think we can start on Alcatraz where Nicholas and Paranel first figure out that there have to be even bigger monsters and... But we don't really see that many of the big monsters, so it doesn't matter that much. But we find out, more importantly, that they think it's one monster that's controlling all the others, which is why they can't see each other, which is why they're not attacking each other. Which leads into an excellent segue for an awesome set of Billy acrobatics and how he uses two spears to turn the Sphinx into glass, and then she just falls on the ground and shatters. So I just thought that was really cool and fancy for how Billy kills the Sphinx. Yeah, it was really cool. And I like that Billy gets to kill the Sphinx because she really wanted to eat him all of last book. Like, he kept being rude to her and, like, he, like, grabs her tongue when she's, like, threatening him. Like, they have a back and forth. So if it wasn't going to be Paranel to kill the Sphinx, and obviously she, she just doesn't have the aura left to, like, do that, I was really glad that Billy got to, like, take her out. And like I said, we didn't get to see a lot of those Jumbo monsters that Paranel and Nicholas were so worried about. Because we kind of quickly move into the, the all of the good guys teaming up and the Mega Crab and Shalodal. They basically were like, we're mostly worried about defeating Shalodal and the Mega Crab. Yeah, but gosh, Shalodal, Quetzal, who's Quetzalcoatl's brother, he really got the short end <laughs> of the stick with the change because he has a skeleton body. So a skeleton and then a dog head, like but an ugly dog head. And then even worse, his feet are backwards. So his heels are to the front and his toes to the back. So like he can't even walk. And his or he still has organs. He still has vital organs inside the skeleton. It's not even just like a Halloween skeleton. It's like a skeleton with like your respiratory system inside. Yeah, like we said. Oh, it's so straight gross. Straight out of a horror movie. <laughs> and like, it's so funny because like Aten and Anubis also like Aten, he gets like kind of like sharp features, but Anubis becomes a full on like has the head of a dog. Like some of these elders really got like a way less good deal than their actual siblings. Yeah. But luckily we don't see too much of Shalodal because he gets caught. And I really liked when Billy and Blackhawk are fighting the crab and... Billy like flings his lasso and he's like, he shoots and he, the lasso hits and he's like, he scores. And I was like, that was really cute. Again, really cute Billy scenes. But then Shalotl eat gets eaten by the crab. So anyway, I'm getting a little far ahead of ourselves, but. Yeah, let's go ahead and check back in with the other San Francisco crew with Neaton and Prometheus on the Golden Gate Bridge. And they're basically having like a final conversation before death. And you guys know I'm a sucker for romance. And Niten says that his only real regret is that he didn't ask Aoife to marry him, which I just thought was so sad. And basically, they make their last stand against the Spar Toy, and they die. <laughs> basically, they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed, which was kind of dramatic too, because like Sagagala like shows up like right after this happens. But I just thought that was so, like, sad that he's like, I just wish I would have, you know, made the move with Aoife. 
Yeah. No, it was really, really sad that that's, like, what he says as he's expecting to die. But, like you said, you know, Tsukagawa comes, and I feel like we can just button up this plot line because there's not that much left. Basically, Tsukagawa comes, she sees them dead, she does her, like, very scary scream, and Bastet and Quetzalcoatl, like, on the other side of the bay are like, we're gonna leave. So they run away, and then she, like, obliterates the spar toy, which is pretty awesome. As I said last episode, she was gonna eat them for lunch, and she truly did. And then she gives her aura, which well, back to Prometheus because she was able, like, she always had a little bit of Prometheus's aura in her because he made her. And she's, like, got enough aura to give it to one person. And she's like, you know, as much as I wish I could save Ten, like, Prometheus will be more important. His gifts will be more important to fight the monsters. So she gives Prometheus life force again. But thank goodness Prometheus is a sap like me, and he also talks about how, you know, he's lived his life. He's been existing for way too long, like it's time for him to go. So he tells Sagogolol to give it to Niten so that he can eventually go save Aoife and ask her to marry him, which, oh, it was so, like, tragically beautiful. I love that scene. Yeah, it was, like, especially, like, Prometheus is, like, almost rage. He's like, I know that this is the right thing to do. Like, I don't need to keep living. I've lived for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Like, give it to this person. He's got something. He's got unfinished business. And we could actually stay in the tragically beautiful vein because we have a lot of that actually over on Alcatraz as well. If you want to talk about that. Yeah, I think that's fine. It's basically a bunch of action, which we don't necessarily need to break down line by line. Yeah, so I already mentioned that, like, our good guys unite around the mud ball that's AA. But before that, Billy throws some of those spearheads because he thinks it's a monster, but it's actually Paranel. And the crow goddess, who has come back to the island, she sacrifices herself and takes the spearhead, so she dies. And then the immortal humans are trying to awaken AA. And in succession, Odin and Hell and Mars all gradually use up their auras and each die. So we have, you know, again, these elders sacrificing themselves for the humans so that the humans can then carry on the mission and carry on life afterwards. And no, these are the, these are the elders who really, even when Danutalus fell the first time, like they understood that like their race was over, like it's time for humans to take over. And Mars has that speech where he's like, my most favorite name was when I was, I'm going to butcher it, but it's Quichlapochli, you know, defender of humans, which was his Aztec name, rather than Mars, like warrior god. And I really, really want to talk about the crow goddess because I don't know if she knows Isis or Cyrus's plan. Maybe it's just a plot hole, but she comes back to the island to aid the Flamels and Maybe, again, it could just be a plot hole, or maybe she knows what Isis and Osiris are up to. But she realizes, like, selfishly that, you know, if Isis and Osiris get their way, she won't exist anymore because she's the next generation. Like, they're trying to prevent the birth of the next generation. Granted, I don't really see what defeating the monsters does to help that, but at least, like, she sides with the right people, which was nice again. Yeah, I just... I think that she probably, well, I think she even says like she just was felt like she was in debt to Paranel and obviously because obviously it's 
it wasn't the Morgan. It's the Morgan's two sisters who like Paranel. The Maka and the Bad. Yeah, the Paranel had awoken by killing the Morgan. So I think they were just ultimately grateful to Paranel, and so they're like, "We're gonna come help you." And like, also they had talked about how like they've always sided with the humans. So it it was the Morgan who like wasn't interested. So that like that makes sense as to why they'd come back, whether they knew about Isis and Osiris's plan at all. Definitely. But since we're already here, let's just go ahead and wrap up the San Francisco battle two on Alcatraz. So Billy and Blackhawk managed to take out Shalotl. Oh, is that how you say it? Again, we could be butcher- butchering these. I think it's Shalotl, but I... Shalotl. I don't know. It doesn't know. matter. I don't speak this Aztec point. Or We're Spanish. almost done with this series, and I won't have to deal with it anymore. So I'm so excited about it. Taylor Lautner is a hard name. Oh, no, the, ta- the character is not Taylor Taylor Lautner is not What's his name? Um, Jacob, Jacob Black. Super straightforward. I don't know how to pronounce that. That's really hard. <laughs> anyway, so Billy and Blackhawk managed to take out Shalotl, and Nicholas and Paranel do awaken AA, who she eats the giant crab, and then she's like, I'll clean up the rest of the monsters, which leaves Billy. He got stabbed by the crab and a very, very diminished Machiavelli. And then Blackhawk got thrown into the sea, which I wrote down that I thought this was like a plot hole because. Like, they, I mean, this is where I'm talking about it feels like some characters were unfinished because after we see this, like, we don't hear anything else about them for the rest of the book. And, like, for example, with Blackhawk, it said he's thrown into the water and then they, there's to like the a Nereids. comment saying, yeah, where they're like, where all the Nereids are waiting. But then in the next chapter, when Nicholas and Paranel are like walking around or something, they're like, oh, the Nereids aren't in the water anymore because Blackhawk killed Nereus, so there's no reason for them to stay there. So then it's like, were the Nereids in the water? Did they kill Blackhawk? Did Blackhawk just fall in the water and he's going to be fine? Like, that, to me, that was just unfortunate that you get like some questions didn't get answered. Um, but anyway, going back to this, then um, that's when Nicholas and Paranel are basically like talking to themselves like how they're ready to die and they're like, oh, you know, we wish you could see the twins, blah, blah, blah. And then also we do see the growth in Machiavelli and how he's prepared to give his entire life force to save Billy, which I thought was a lovely ending for his character. And I can totally see why he's your favorite because that was that was a heartfelt moment. Like he was he has really connected with Billy and like he was ready to sacrifice himself to save him. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Paranel, like when she's trying to give Nicholas her aura in the Scarab Beetle in the last book, like when she gets a little savage and she's like, I'm like, I'll do it. And Machiavelli is like, I've lived for so long. I'm literally longer than like European presence on the Americas. But (laughs) like, and I know he's immortal too, but like, I would like to heal him if I could. And... Like, you know, Mars has to pull him off. He's like, don't. Like, if you die, you're useless to him. And, yeah, but I totally agree with you. That, like, Machiavelli and Billy and Blackhawk, we don't get a resolution of their characters. Like, we, I think they're all alive, but, like, we don't actually know. So. Yeah. But, well, let's talk about Machiavelli. As you mentioned, he is probably my favorite character in the whole series. I really like him because of his arc. You and I have been talking generally, not just about this series, but, like, about other fiction that we consume like, a lot lately about how, like, the older I get, the less likely, like, the less willing I am to accept characters that don't have any development. And Niccolo has this really awesome arc 
that still feels very reasonable. Like, he goes from being very selfish and calculating and, like, a pawn to sort of working of his own accord. But also, like, still, like, it costs him a lot. Like, we don't know if Aten in the present is going to, like, kill him now or whatever. But, like, he... It takes him the whole series to, like, get to a point where he's in full repudiation of the Dark Elders, which I like his arc and it feels very reasonable. Yeah, I I definitely agree. But we also don't really need to talk too much about that giant crab and, you know, fighting with the giant spider. We, we don't need to talk about that. I don't I don't need to talk about it. No, thank you. Um, but I do want to point out the mono karate unicorns that literally sound straight out of a horror movie. Like I we have many examples of this being made into a horror movie. And these unicorns are described as having blood red heads. So just imagine that. Blood red heads. That already is terrifying. And then they have four foot long horns, which I'm That's your height. Very you're, small. You're four feet I'm tall. only five foot one, so Same four thing. feet is like practically the size of me. That's a giant horn. And they use their unicorn horn to impale their victims, and then they'll tilt their heads back so that the bodies will slide down the horn so that they can eat them. Absolutely disgusting. Definitely (laughs) a horror movie. Okay, so Michael Scott, if you're still listening to the podcast at this point, don't bring Asia on as an executive producer, but um, I will definitely come on as a producer for this TV show. But yeah, they are scary. They're, They're vicious sounding. But anyway, that pretty much ties up the modern plot line. So let's go ahead and hop back our 10,000 years to talk about the rest. Yeah, 10,000 years passed. A long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But we have Isis and Osiris, and they're parading the twins around. And the twins are like, um, I don't think people are just going to accept some random stranger teenagers as their rulers. And Isis and Osiris are like, be quiet. We'll tell you what to do. And then Anubis is being a whiny little baby, and I want to talk about Anubis a little more because he is complaining equally about how much he doesn't like his mom, but he's also doing everything she tells him to do. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about that abusive relationship. <laughs> also, when we, I also need to talk about, I wrote down how destructive Bastet is. Like, Anubis is like, oh, when she goes into her rages, like, you, may, you better get out of the way because she's just going to destroy everything in her past in her path and like that is unacceptable she's an adult you do not get to throw a tantrum like oh my god so i wrote if i were anubis i would have locked her up in a faraway shadow room just for that just for being destruct like destructive like that is not like that is not adult behavior absolutely not because he talks about that how he's like oh once i become ruler i'm probably just gonna get my loyal my most loyal friends to like lock her up but I don't know. Their relationship is just so interesting because, like, she's honestly just so disrespectful and also really childish in general. And I just don't understand why, like, she has to go through Anubis to do anything. Like, she should be able to do it herself. That's exactly what I wrote down. I was like, it feels like it makes no sense for them because if Bastet just wants to rule, like, she should just rule on her own. Like, why does she have to go through Anubis? And if Anubis wants to rule, he should just do it on his own. Like, Neither of them gains anything by, like, power sharing. I mean, I guess, like, of course, if they both, like, put their name into contention, they'd probably, like, quote-unquote split their vote. But, like, you know, eventually only one of them is going to be the ruler. So, like, that's how monarchy works. Like, you have one ruler. So it doesn't make sense for either of them, like, him to, like, be the figurehead ruler, but, like, to do everything she tells him. 
when she should just rule if she wants to. Like, it doesn't make sense as an arrangement, besides the fact that, like, I mean, I guess it, it's not a big plot line. It's really just to, like, show that a different approach than Isis and Osiris. I mean, it probably just shows kind of how they're both cowards like in their own way because obviously Anubis is a coward because he won't stand up to his mother and won't be like stop controlling me I can think for myself and stop insulting me he's she's so mean to him she calls him stupid like all the time also can we talk about every time like the description of her like digging her claws into her skin I was like I would have punched her and then I would have been like guards get get her out of here absolutely not but also she's a coward because she's not willing to just you know stand up for herself and be like i'm gonna rule because obviously she's powerful she has followers or whatever like so that's where like i think it is like they're both cowardly in like different ways so like that's how they end up together but i also just had the same thought like how you're saying about it not really being a useful arrangement because even when the twins get you know stowed away in the pyramid why didn't she just get them killed like why does she keep putting her trust in anubis as opposed to just doing things herself. Like, I just don't understand why she can't do anything on her own. And alas, it didn't work out too well for her. Yeah, it really didn't pay off. Yeah, and that actually brings us to the twins. So we they're brought to the pyramid to be presented to everyone. And then Isis and Osiris are like, okay, now go hide in this room while, like, the grown-ups talk. Which, for that scene... <laughs> First of all, they're the ones who keep saying, you know, we're not going to just listen to everything they say. As soon as they're like, don't leave. I'm like, why are they listening to them? Why are they just locking themselves in a random scary room? Like, I guess, like, I don't know. There's no questions asked, but whatever. Then Sophie and Josh, once they're in there, they start like having this heart to heart, trying to figure out their true identities. And if Isis and Osiris are their real parents, which like, that's great. And Josh says he'll always be Sophie's brother and protect her no matter what. But I'm just like, he still hasn't apologized for abandoning her to go with D. And Sophie also has not brought it up. Like, I don't understand how they can be all buddy-buddy and, like, trying to have this heart-to-heart. But they haven't even talked about that major issue. Like, and this is how we've talked about, like, for me, I feel like for the writing, like, to me, that's just really disappointing that that was just tossed aside and, like, never re-looked at. Yeah. it's especially ridiculous because they're dealing with a very complex emotional topic of like, are these our real parents? And like, are we on our own? Like, do we go with what they want? Do we not go with what they want? What do they want? But like, they can't vocalize each other's betrayals. And like, that's more than just like, I mean, you and I are obviously very team Sophie because we think that we don't agree with Josh's like behavior. But like, if you take it from Josh's perspective, like, He also has a right to be mad at Sophie because he doesn't understand why she won't listen to him and he doesn't understand why she was attacking Coatlicue. Again, he's wrong and stupid, but, like, if at least if we give him credit of, like, he he could be mad at Sophie because he's like, why didn't you, like, listen to me? Like, I had these concerns and you always pushed them aside. Again, his concerns were stupid, but, like, (laughs) at least, like... We obviously, Sophie has a really good case. You freaking abandoned me for a known murderer. But... Like, both of them have frustrations, and I wish that they had, like, talked about them. Yeah, it's, like I said, just It's a little disappointing. Disappointing, yeah. As soon as they're back together, they're like, nothing's happened. It is, like it said, it's almost like it's just brushed under 
the rug, but like it's not even brushed under because it's literally just not talked about, which I don't know. Plot hole. Plot hole. I would agree with that. And then young Tsagagulal shows up. So she gives Josh the codex, which Dee brought back from the future. Back to the future. Back from the future. And Dee, remember, he gave it to Abraham in the last reading. And then Abraham gave it to Tsagagulal, and she gives it to Josh. And then she takes the twins up the pyramid. And we find out that basically that the, she, she wants them to use the power in the pyramid to end Donutalis. Yes, and then we also need to explain before we get there how the Fab Five show up at the top of the pyramid. So at the prison, Ard Gremna, the jailer, and who we also learn is Scatty's father, is goading a 10, and Dee helps Virginia save the humans from the arrows that, like, the Anpu guard something are firing down on them, and Scatty saves a 10 from death when Ard Gremna, her father, tosses him off the wall. And Dee does die from using his powers for good for once, which felt like was pretty predictable. Like, he, he was going to die. He was already super old. Yeah, and again, this is like a good arc for Dee because, like, right before he dies, he calls them humans, not humani, because that's, like, been one of our character flaws in D is that he thinks of himself as above humans because he's immortal and he's the most, he's a servant of the highest dark elders. And like Nicholas is even like Nicholas and Niccolo are both like, you should call them humans. Like you're not an elder, you're a human too. So we get that like linguistic change for him. And, but it's, but you know, it's still not like he's not become a nice person all of a sudden. Like he only identifies with humans once he's been betrayed and aged up by Isis and Osiris. Like, it's like Niten would say, you know, he realizes finally that he's human first, immortal second. And so he doesn't really get that much of a redemption. Like, he does the right thing, but he dies. He doesn't get to live his life as a good human, which is fair, because he's not been a good human. So I'm glad that we don't get, like, he doesn't get to live on forever, like, being redeemed from the terrible thing he'd, things he'd been doing for 500 years. So, like, I like his ending for him. So how you were just talking about, and, like, I think another character talks about this too, but why is the term humani seen as offensive? I was just confused during that because it seems like this entire series, all the characters have been referring to humans as humani. Like, it's never been seen as an offensive term. You have to be careful. It's not all the characters. It's all the elders and dark but elders. Like, Nicholas like Sophie refers to the hu- Is that she why She always that- calls them, she calls them humans and the witch calls them Humani. And that's why that one time she said it when Josh made the comment, whereas I guess I was just grouping them together because I was like, I could have swore like Nicholas, Paranel, like I thought they all referred to that as that, but I guess it was just the elders. It's and I guess D it's and seen the as like a, like a derogatory term or something or like looking yeah. down upon them. Rather than like humans, which sounds like individual humans, Humani sounds like a vast species. Um, oh, well, well, I just, I never caught that. <laughs> Well, I did. Well, we've never talked about it before either. No, so that's we haven't. Why when, they, when it was brought up in the book, I was like, that's a bad term? Like, it's just been used so many times in the series and no one's ever said anything. So I'm like, how are we supposed to know it's offensive? Yeah, it's like just, that's a layer of good writing that I that Scott puts in where it's like, it's one tier up of like, because you don't, unless you're like kind of know to look for it or you're like paying very close attention because... 
like if you cl- pay close attention, Nicholas and Nicholas don't call them humani. They call them humans. And D always calls them humani. I feel like one of the other characters maybe even called him out on it before. But like it's definitely has to do with the fact that D thinks he's above other humans. Like he thinks of himself as elder. Or at least Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So character. when he intentionally at the end he calls them humans, it's because he has realized his own mortality. But like I said, it's not because he's become altruistic. It's because he's like, I'm gonna die like the rest of them. So I'm glad he didn't get like a long redemption for another five hundred years of peaceful living. But we're sure that like Scatty didn't use it. And she calls Joan. them that. Does Joan? Scatty. I think that Scatty calls them humani because she's not a human. But Joan doesn't. Joan calls them humans, for sure. Okay. But anyway, Scatty goes to join young Prometheus and the Fab Five on the top of the pyramid. And Dare and Aten are on their Ramana. And Josh and Sophie make it to the top of the pyramid where they need to use the energy stored in the pyramid which it had drained from the elders during the meeting, to destroy Donatolis. Meanwhile, Isis and Osiris are pissed and land their Ramana up on the pyramid to basically scold the twins. Yeah, they're like, why are you running away from us? And the twins are like, we want some answers. And finally, it's basically revealed that uh, Sophie and Josh are not twins. Isis and Osiris have been stalking humanity since Donatolis fell to find the most pure gold and silver. And they found Josh, like, in a Neanderthal village, which I'm like, is Josh then biologically a Neanderthal? Because that would explain why he's bad at rational decision-making. But also, like, they're biologically very different than humans, too. And then Sophie was, like, in the footsteps of Russia. So, like, Chechnya, Ukraine, not really sure. But then they brought them into the... Like, I guess these kids would have, like, been awoken at the end of the 20th century. And they were raised together as twins. Josh is older than Sophie, but they're not related. So, Adrian, you were really, really close last episode. And, like, basically, like, Isis and Osiris did raise them. The people that they thought were their parents did raise them from the day they were born. But they aren't biologically related at all. And as this conversation is happening... Sophie starts realizing, like, that Zephaniah had tried to destroy all that ancient technology because she was trying to keep it away from Isis and Osiris because she always knew they weren't elders, but she couldn't figure out what they were. And then we get, it's revealed that they are Earth Lords. So they're even older than Archons, and they're, like, kind of, like, gross lizard dragons. Like, they have wings, but, like, claws. Yeah, that was quite the reveal. I still can't believe... That, like, they kidnapped them and then put them, like, in a shadow realm where, like, time doesn't pass for thousands of years, you know, until it was time to bring that out in the 20th century. Like, why then? Why did they have to wait? I think it had to do with, like, the Codex or, like, the other characters being in place or... Yeah, how the, everything lines up in time. Crazy. Because basically we find out that Donatalus used to be ruled by golds and silvers who sometimes were related and sometimes not. Sometimes twins, sometimes not. And, like, Amenhotep and Bastet said they killed out that line, but, like, it was a lot of different people. And then, basically, when Donatalus fell the first time, Isis and Osiris were, like, keeping an eye on. 
basically looking for any gold and silver that they could bring back in time. And those just happened to be the two purest ones they could find after the fall of Danutalas. That's crazy. But anyway, so then the twins say they obviously will not rule Danutalas for Isis and Osiris. So Isis just says, well, we'll just have to kill you then. But then Josh just jumps up and stabs them with the swords of power he has, Excalibur and Clarant, and they get beaten really easily. He literally just stabs them and it's over. Like, that was it. And I guess it just turns out that these swords were more of a trump card than everyone else knew because with them, it's just super easy. Like, they... That was very anticlimactic, like... Incredibly. Like, the swords can open ligates. They can time travel. They can destroy anything. And, like... Sophie and Josh spent all that time learning all that magic. We have Josh being petulant for three books, complaining that he doesn't know enough magic powers. And then in the end, it wasn't about the magic. It was just the swords. Oh, gosh. And, yeah, the battle between Isis, Osiris, and the twins isn't really a battle. It's like they both attack Sophie. She gets knocked over, and Josh is like, don't hurt my 30,000-year-old younger not-sister. Stabs them. They both become gross golden puddles. Blech. And then all the good guys escape Danutalis on the Vimana. So that's the Fab Five, Young Prometheus, Virginia, Aten, Sophie, possibly Young Tagaglalal. I mean, the other elders obviously survived too, so. But they all run away. And Josh stays because, and because Josh and Sophie basically realize that even though they don't have to fight like the original twins did on the battle, on the on the pyramid, like, one of them does have to stay behind to destroy Donutalis. Like, they still do have to destroy the island in order to sink it so that humanity can flourish. And, like, how does Josh survive? I guess he doesn't actually survive because, like, he's dead now. But, like, I guess it's the power of the sword. The power of the swords. He knew he was going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, also, like... Sophie and Josh both knew that they could, either of them could do it. Like, they both kind of, they're powerful enough that, like, they knew they would, because the elders survived the fall. It's just humans and, like, anyone else who was on the island that didn't, like, the Anpu didn't really survive the fall very well. Um, <laughs> good riddance. <laughs> good riddance, yeah. We don't need jackal-headed warriors strutting around. But anyway, but that, I'm just happy because, like I said, we, Josh destroys Donatalus. Sophie, I guess, will save the earth. And Josh becomes Marethu, and we see the Swords of Power all, he, like, puts them together one by one, and then they form into a hook on his hand, which, in essence, is just, like, really specific, but it makes sense. Yeah, so, and then basically is, you know, sort of, that's the end, is that Josh becomes Marethu, and... As in the original fall, the basically all of the good guys, they help start civilization. And because Donatella still fell, the old history timeline sort of continues. So Josh, a.k.a. now Marethu, he basically can bring all the, the good characters who are from the present, who've like Joan and Scatty and Virginia and Sophie, they've helped humanity sort of develop post the fall of Donatalis the second time. 
And once that, that like hit, human history is on the right path, he can bring them back into the 21st century and they can just continue living. And Marethu shows up on Donutalis. I mean, back on Alcatraz. No, San Francisco. Whatever. Same thing. But basically, this, all this happens like in the same instant because it's basically just history like playing back. And as Sophie and now mortal Agnes, aka Tsagagalal, are like back at the house, he sees the flamels. They're like, we wish we were dying in Paris. And he's like, I'll take you. And he brings the flamels to their final resting place in their graves in Paris, which is really beautiful, but not tragic because they get to die together and be buried where they want to be buried. So... Asia looks puzzled. I feel like I'm going to have to try to explain well, some time travel. Well, let's talk about the ending because, I, like I said, to me, I'm happy that Josh was Marethu, but a criticism I have is I just feel like Josh's storyline seems like the only one that was really fully tied up with the bow, finished. Like, we know what he's... And the Flamels. And D. Well, obviously the people who died. And then the Flamels, so like, the Flamels die... He takes them to Paris, they die. And then, because in his letter, like the epilogue of the book, it's a letter from Marethew or Josh to Sophie. And he says that the Flamels say hi. So he's just saying that like from before they died, he was just saying that? Or is this like, is he seeing them in the past? Or in death, because he is death. <laughs> so like, does he see dead people? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Paranel's job. She sees the ghosts. I think it's from when he takes them to die. Anyway, okay, so that's fine. So they get the wrap-up, but basically, like we said, we know that, like, Machiavelli, Blackhawk, and Billy, we don't really know what happens to them. We know that Niten and Aoife do get married, and Aoife and Scatty make up because Scatty is a bridesmaid. So we, we get- And Scatty must have gone to help Aoife get out of the Coatlicue Shadow Realm. Yeah, yeah get escape from uh, Coatlicue. So we're getting all that. We're getting all this. But the person that we don't get an ending for is Sophie. Like, it's just kind of like this vague, she lived forever. Like, she helps humanity. Like, she helps start humanity. But then she gets brought back to the present. Now she looks like she's 15 years old. She's got all these powers. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Time travel. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying that, what do you mean? I thought that... Donatalis falls, and then they just go through history. Like, or does Josh slash Marethew, he takes them forward back to where he they... He said he uses some gates to get them there. So he says that, well, he kind of says that, like, for, like, five, six hundred years or so, Scatty and Joan and, like, all the good guys and Sophie, they help, like, start humanity. And then he transports them back to the present. Okay. So basically, like... What happens on Don Utalis during the series, so Josh, Sophie, Fab Five, is basically just to ensure that Don Utalis still falls and that humanity still gets its right footing. And then everyone else can, and because humanity is now on the right path, we go back to the present. Where everything is good because they started out. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, this, I was very confused. Because I was confused. I did not understand that the first time I read the series, and Michael Scott, if I'm wrong, I, I don't know if I can read it again to get it wrong again. But, like, I think it's that, like, basically, it's not that history was repeating itself over and over and over again. It was that Donatellus fell. Isis and Osiris had this one-time plan that Abraham knew about to, like, try to get a redo. And Josh and Sophie 
don't give them that redo. And But we had to make sure that all of the humanity starts off the same way, basically, so that the present can still exist. Okay, also, now I have more questions because <laughs> I'm thinking of just more questions are popping into my head. So we've decided that Sophie and Josh were the original twins. They are the original twins who caused the fall of Don Utalis. Yes and no. Like, they, when, when Don Utalis fell the first time. Yes. Like, 10,000 years before the present. I don't, I guess they must have been, yes, they must have been those twins. They, so like whatever the original thing was, they still had to have gone back in time, but it's just they died. But then Isis and Osiris are like, oh, we'll just do it, but we're going to change their few, their life so that they'll follow us and they'll do what sure. we tell them to do. And then obviously it fails. And then by them failing and obviously with the whole prophecy thing, they're able to change what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But they still have to ensure that Don Talos does fall. Like humanity does still have to happen, but they don't have to. So they do have to still like fight. They still have to like bring down the end of the island. Okay. It's a little confusing and maybe I'm wrong. It's like if you think about it too much, you're like, I'm, I keep getting lost. Like more questions pop up and you're like, but that doesn't fully make sense. Yeah. But I think if you just keep it general, you're like, okay, I guess we can understand the ending. But like I said, so anyway. Let's talk about Sophie. Yeah, going off of that, then we're saying, so Josh, Matthew, he brings them back to the present. So Sophie is still, you know, like 15, 15 and a half year old girl. But is she immortal now? It sounds like she's just going to live forever. But how did she become immortal? Well, she lived 600 years with Marethi, I don't know. It didn't make very much Paul, sense. How did she become immortal? It makes sense that Josh is immortal because he became Marethi and he has the power of the swords. How did Sophie become immortal? Maybe she's not immortal. The only way Maybe to become immortal die, is unless did Josh as Marethi like use give the codex? Give her like, immortality. He said he, he could. He said he can give her immortality. So. Okay. Plot hole. But the biggest thing is that Sophie doesn't get a button to her story. And that's what, when I read these seri- the series a decade ago, like, the thing that frustrated me the most was that Sophie didn't get a a wrap-up the way Josh did. Because Sophie was always my favorite yeah. character. And I didn't, like, now, in retrospect, like, or reading it the second time, it was clear now that Marethi was going to be Josh. But, like, what Sophie becomes afterwards is sort of vague. And I wish that we got just, like, any more resolution on Sophie post-series. I haven't said, like, even if... Yeah, even if, like, they just said what she did in those 600 years to develop, and then it's like, what was her plan? Like, she knows that she's planning, you know, visit every country in the world or something to do something. Like, there was just nothing, which I understand, you know, the epilogue is, it's a letter from Matthew, so it's told solely from Josh's point of view. And for me, even if I thought it would have been interesting since it's a letter to Sophie, if it would have been Sophie reading Mm -hmm. the letter. So then after we read his letter, we get some kind of reaction from her showing where she is, what she's doing, what are her plans, anything. Whereas we literally get nothing. We just get Sophie's going to be okay. Sophie's immortal now, apparently, unexplained. But that's it, which I, I do think is disappointing in the sense of for a series that had two main characters for the whole series like they're the main characters you have a male and a female it is disappointing that only the male character gets a real ending yeah and it's not that it's not even that obviously in context or whatever it seems like sophie's ending does seem better because she's not death and she doesn't have a freaking hook 
yeah, she doesn't have death. She doesn't have this terrible responsibility, but like at least he got an ending and we got to see exactly or like get an idea of like what his future would be like continuing into this world. But I just feel like there could have been an epilogue part two or something. Like I said, the fact that we don't know, obviously Sophie's the main character, but then just like the few other characters that we don't get any wrap up on, like was just a little disappointing. Yeah. And I felt that way the first time I read the series as well. I didn't this time because I knew that basically like I knew it was coming. Well, you knew it was going to happen. So it's like no point in being disappointed twice. Exactly. But yeah, but you were right about Marethew. Did you figure out like three books ago? I, I was like, yes. there's a hint as the to hint. who Marethew is. Did you figure it first out? First of all, when I was reading the epilogue, the letter, Marethew, whatever, in his thing, he's like, oh, you know, I'm in my shadow realm. I put, you know, some ancient animals. But of course, there's no snakes. And immediately it was like a light bulb went up above my head. And I was like, oh, my God, the hint, the hint, the hint Charles talked about was I don't remember what from what book. I don't remember from what episode, but it was when Scatty and Joan are in what they discover is Marethew's Shadow Realm, which at first that's when they think that they've gone back to the Pleistocene era. And obviously there's all the ancient animals and stuff and they're running through. And because Charles made a comment about it and I remember an episode being like, that's weird. Like Joan says she's like snakes. And Charles is like, oh my God, when she said that I got so scared there were going to be snakes. But she's like, there's no snakes here. This is like for this environment, there should be snakes. And I was like, that was the hint. Because obviously Josh, all he's talked about the whole series is how he hates snakes. He hates snakes. That is why. And we find it's a shadow realm. So of course, in his shadow realm, he would have a place with no snakes. So I did. All of his shadow realms. Yeah. But that was my hint. As I... As soon as I read it, I was like, that was the hint. Because the whole time, Charles has been like, you don't know the hint. Like, I said a hint. And I was like, you didn't say anything. That makes no sense. And now you're like, how could I be so stupid? No sense. But I don't think in in context, I don't think I would have. Like, I think it makes sense that, like, I wouldn't necessarily put that together. Also, because when that happened, that was before. That we was didn't our have first a lot time, on like, Marethew yet. We just kind of knew he existed. Yeah, because when they, after that scene, when they eventually run into him, that's our first, like, real sighting like of him. Like, he has blue eyes, and he wears jeans yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, so, like, that's the first sighting. So, of course, I have no idea who Marathi is at that point. So totally And he sense. hasn't revealed that he's human yet. Like, so. Yeah, because you're like, he could be an elder, he could be an archon, like, we don't know. But I just wanted to say, since he had a world with no snakes, I would make my Shadow Realm with absolutely no bugs, nothing that crawled, absolutely nothing. I just wanted to throw. No, the no snakes works for me. That's pretty terrifying. Definitely no bugs. But also in just just some more notes that I wrote down about Matthew's letter to Sophie, he writes telling her that she can call him whenever by saying Matthew, that name specifically, not Josh, three times when looking into a mirror. And then he does say the thing about how the Flamel send their love. And then he makes a comment about how Aoife and Eten got married and Scatty was a bridesmaid. So that was very nice. But also, like, even there, like, how he says how Sophie can call him. Like, does Sophie ever call him? Like, so many questions. Yeah. Basically, we need a sequel, Michael Scott. Thank you very much. Or just, like, I don't know, like. A blog post. A blog post. Email or like I said, a second epilogue. Like, just a, an I would just want, like, I would want Sophie reading the letter. That where is are they now? We need a where are they now. 
<laughs> Where are they now special? But last thing with Marethew's identity, I did have to admit that I know because Charles made it clear that he's like, I'm not spoiling, I'm not spoiling. And I think he made a comment in the last episode about this. I just want to say the main reason why my theory about Marethew was solidified was because when Charles made the comment about him thinking that the elemental swords would turn into the hook. Which again was a guess. I now, of course. No, I, I'm not saying you spoiled it, but I'm saying I think that if you wouldn't have made that comment, I don't think I would have come to the conclusion as quickly and or just been as confident sure. in my conclusion. Because obviously by making that connection, it's like, okay, if it has to do with the swords, like the obviously the main character that we know is strongly connected to the swords is Josh. And like, especially that was too at the beginning, like before we had more evidence. But like to me, that was more of like the evidence that kind of nailed it right, like on the nail as opposed, hit it right on the nail as opposed to everything else seemed a little bit more like circumstantial. Like it could have been explained away. Yeah. It could have been a coincidence. But I just want to say, but I'm very proud of myself that I, my theory was correct. Yeah, you should be. My subconscious must have known that the swords became the hook. Like a decade later, my subconscious was like, <laughs> sword hook, sword hook, sword hook. <laughs> Because I really didn't know, but I was right. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, I think that wraps up our second series. Is there anything else you want to add on the series before we finish, Asia? I don't think so. I think, I guess my overall final impression of the series was, one, when this is made into a TV show, since, like we said, we got confirmation that it's supposed to be made into a TV show, I definitely think it's going to be a horror film, a horror (laughs) TV show. That is one conclusion. Um, In our apartment, I will watch it first, and then I'll watch it again with her to warn her if there are spiders. So we can have trigger warnings. (laughs) But conclusion number two is that I do think that the reveal of Marethi was very well done. I think it was a nice secret that was kept throughout the whole series and didn't come to the end, and I thought it was enough. There was enough foreshadowing that you can make a guess, but not enough to give it away. So I did, I I really enjoy, like, plot twists like that. So I just, I enjoyed that it was, like, not super obvious, but there were enough hints that you could be, like, you know, making theories and still be enjoying the book. Yeah, like you definitely could guess it if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. And it wasn't hit over the head, but it also wasn't random. Because as we said, like if all of a sudden it had been someone completely random, like if Ard Grimna had been a Marathew, you'd been like, well, this is terrible writing. <laughs> so Exactly. Thank goodness it wasn't that. And then third conclusion. Thank you, Michael Scott, for not killing off all the main characters. I hate that when, like, the author will kill off all your favorite characters. Like, honestly, all the characters that died were all characters I either expected to die or they were elders that I didn't care about, personally. Yeah. But I did appreciate that because, you know, I didn't want to have to cry at the end of the book. (laughs) And then, finally, I am just, I think the disappointments are, I'm disappointed that Sophie and Josh's, the betrayal thing, that was never discussed again. Which maybe, maybe the hint is that she never talks to him again because of that. Which, like, that doesn't make any sense because they never talked about it. But, and I'm obviously disappointed with Sophie's ending. But other than that, that, those are, like, my final impressions of the series. And then, would I read it again? No. (laughs) I just don't like fantasy, but it was a good series, I will say that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, that's kind of how I felt about Percy Jackson when we finished it. Like, it was fine. I definitely I mean, have I'm no, sure you wouldn't read Percy Jackson again. I wouldn't read Percy Jackson Percy again. Percy Jackson, is, is, it's also much younger. Like, this is yeah, much older Yeah, that one's too young. Group. This was, this, like, I'd feel fine. Like, reading this again as an adult, I would feel fine. For me, like, the, I just wouldn't read it again because I don't like fantasy that much. And this yeah. is a lot. This is a lot of fantasy like, for me. Yeah, for me, like, it's a lot. Like, I love fantasy, so I could definitely read it again. I like I would like my kids to read it, you know, when they when they're of the appropriate age for it. It definitely reads differently as on a reread, obviously. The Marethi was less of a like it was more of like a theory that I could build on. Like I I could again, I knew who Marethi was the whole time, but like I could look for evidence this time, whereas when I first read it, like I just was like, Whoa, Josh is Marethi, how is this possible? That was my exact reaction. Um, and, but I did really enjoy it. And it was it was interesting that, like, reading it the second time, how the plots diverge and which character relationships you get. Like, I didn't remember it that well because I feel like so much of my memory, so many of my memories are from the first three books. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of, like, Sophie Scatty in my memory. Whereas, like, they get separated from Scatty halfway through The Magician, and they don't see her again. Um, and, like, the Billy Machiavelli relationship is such a gem, and you only get it in the latter half of the series. And so for me, I, like, things that I just wasn't, like, that didn't register or, like, stay in my psyche the same way, like, I got to enjoy those. And I thought they were, it was, it, we got, like, really interesting pairings of characters throughout the series, which... I appreciate. I might read it again, not anytime soon, but um, I'm waiting for the show. Again, Michael Scott, if there's any way I can be involved in the TV show, I will be. <laughs> Trying to get a job. <laughs> I'm not blonde, so I cannot play Josh. Also, I don't want to play him because I've ragged on him too much in the show. I don't know. Maybe I can be young D when, you know, his dad is like, you're a flawed tool for studying too much. <laughs> you're a cameo. <laughs> My the cameo. flashback. No, but seriously, like, I totally would do any sort of creative production role on the show. Because I, I am very passionate <laughs> about the series. I did read it as a child. I want, I knew I wanted to start the podcast with this. We wanted to start with two different mythology series that, like, coincidentally, like, Asia and I started these two at the same time. And they're both mythology series. And we're switching tracks completely next week. So next week we're starting Twilight, not mythology, vampire sex. So we're starting Twilight next week. We're reading the first book in the Twilight Saga, and that's the we're going to read the first half. So we're going to read chapters 1 through 13, and I'm very excited to finally read Twilight. I've never done it. I'm very excited to finally start. I'm very excited for you, too, and I cannot wait to hear your thoughts. <laughs> you know I'm going to have many. Anyway, if you have predictions, theories, or questions, or just want to keep talking to us about the Flamel books more, remember that you can stay in touch with us about anything on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at thenerdparty. And to find me, I'm at asiabonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram. And I'm at C.E. Shuland on both Twitter and Instagram. Remember, you know, we're a podcast, so rating and review, sharing it is how we grow our audience. 
So share it around if you with your friends, if you enjoyed it. Write us a review. That helps us with the algorithm on all the podcast apps. And of course, check out the other amazing podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. And then make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yep, hit that subscribe and have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.